What's up and welcome to Don't Depend on Daddy. I'm Michaela, a 20-something who's just trying to figure it out. I spent the first half of my 20s learning how to manage my money, navigate corporate America, and ultimately quit my 9-to-5 to build my business, break your budget, full-time. I've created the Don't Depend on Daddy podcast to give you the straightforward, tough love that you need to hear to save more money, figure out your career, and make the most of both your time and your life without depending on anybody else. So if you're looking to save more, make more, and live your best life, you've come to the right place. Let's get your money right so you don't depend on daddy. Hello and welcome back to Don't Depend on Daddy, the podcast. My name's Michaela and I am your host. We're back for another podcast episode. Today is going to be a Q&A. Before we get into it, I'm going to prep you guys with all the usual stuff. If you enjoy this podcast, if you like the new name, if you like the rebrand, if you like what I say, if you like me, if you like Break Your Budget, please, please, please go leave me a review on Apple Podcast. It means the world to me. It helps push the podcast out. I say this every single episode and I will continue to say it. We are taking the podcast seriously in 2022. We are making the podcast a thing. I have not missed a single episode. I will not miss one. In fact, I'm pre-recording this episode in an effort to not miss any episodes while I'm traveling home. So Like I said, if you like this, please go leave me a review. If you're feeling spicy, you can write a review. But if you're just feeling like, I'm going to do Michaela a favor today, just go leave me five stars. It helps. It pushes it. And please, I'm working hard. We're grinding over here to make this podcast quality. Um, Beyond that, I think that's actually the only housekeeping I have for this week. I have said this in another episode But basically, I'm pre-recording a bunch of podcast episodes because I'm going to be traveling home and it's harder for me to like make content and stuff when I'm not in my usual setup from an equipment standpoint, from an editing standpoint, from a time standpoint, and just from like a privacy standpoint. So here we are pre-filming a bunch of episodes. It's Tuesday morning. I've got my coffee with me right here. I've been going to Starbucks on Tuesdays because they're doing that like half off thing where you can get your coffee for 50% off. So my coffee this morning was two bucks. I went on a walk and I put it in this nice cup so that it stays cold all day. I don't know about you guys, but I am like a long-term coffee sipper. Like I sip my coffee all morning long. Another thing I think that's important or I guess fun to share is this summer I have been like really leaning into having not very much of a routine in the mornings and even during the day. I have been for so long the kind of person who implements like an incredibly rigid routine and I think it's contributed to me having a lot of anxiety and so this summer I've been trying to just lean into like doing what I feel like throughout the day and I'm lucky that I work for myself so I'm able to do that. And kind of lean into like productive time, but also lean into times where I'm feeling like I need to take things slowly. And so I used to have like, a, and this was more when I was working corporate, and I think it's kind of more necessary when you work a corporate job, but I used to have a very rigid morning routine where like I would wake up at a certain time, usually six, I would get up, I would make my bed, I would make my coffee, I would do Pilates and I'd sign on to work and like I'd have these certain things I needed to do. And if I didn't do those things, I felt so unproductive and I didn't feel good about myself and I felt like I failed for the day and I let it impact my whole day and now 
what I've been trying to do this summer, and I think it's going to be a summer thing. I think kind of once the summer's over and, you know, the time changes again and it's not light out as long and whatever, all of those things, I'm going to get back into having a more structured routine, but I'm allowing myself this summer to sort of just lean into everything. So that means that like, for example, yesterday I woke up and I just got right to work around seven o'clock today. I woke up and I went on a walk and I got a coffee and I came back and I like took my time and I started working a little bit later. And I think what helps me is just like, I have my whole day to get things done. And so if that means that I need to take a break or I want to take a break or whatever, it's okay. And if I don't follow a very rigid routine, it's okay. And it's not going to impact and I shouldn't allow it or let it to impact how productive I am during the day. And so it's been a really great learning experience for me. Do I think that I want to live my whole life like this? No, but for a couple of months, just like leaning into it. Like if I get up and I feel like working right away, working right away and not making myself go on a walk and just the opposite. If I get up and I want to go on a walk and get a coffee and do that, doing it before I start working instead of like making myself start working right away. So it's just listening to what I feel like doing and being okay with it. And it's actually really helped me just sort of be comfortable with like things not going to plan or um, not having this rigid schedule because that's something I've always struggled with. It is my anxiety. Like if something doesn't go to plan, I'm really bad at, um, going with the flow. It's not my strong suit. And this has actually sort of helped me really chill out. So if you're somebody who struggles with anxiety or you struggle with getting out of like having a rigid schedule or you have a routine and it's not making you feel good, I'd say maybe try to let go of that routine and just sort of lean into listening to how you feel to a degree that makes sense for your life. Like I said, my life and the lifestyle I'm living but from working for myself, like I have the ability to be flexible um, in more ways than I did when I worked a corporate job. So lean into it in the way that you can, but I'd encourage you to sort of kind of be a little bit more flexible with your schedule and routine during the summer for the last few weeks of the summer, which is so crazy to think about the fact that like the summer is practically over. What is it about getting older where your summer just disappears? I feel like July, every year, July is that month that like doesn't happen. I don't know what it is, but the 4th of July comes around and it feels like the summer, you blink and the summer is over. Um, And that's how this year felt. I, I think the other thing too, being in LA, like since the seasons don't change really and like there isn't a dramatic change from winter to spring to summer, it kind of is just nice all the time. The summer doesn't really feel like the summer because it's summer all the time here. And it's a a weird thing to get used to because I feel like living at home or like being at home on the Cape and in Massachusetts, the summer has such a specific feeling to it. Where here, it's like, it's just another day. Like it's just Saturday. We go to the beach on Saturdays. Like it's not, it doesn't feel special or different, which I'm not complaining about. I love, like I love the warmth. I love how the temperature here kind of stays the same. Um, But it just made this summer feel like not summer. So I don't know where I was going with that, but that's kind of, 
I guess the little catch up we're going to do today. The theme of today's podcast episode is Q&A. So every Monday I do a Q&A on my Instagram stories and I generally will answer as many questions as I can. I very rarely answer all of the questions. This week I got a lot of questions. Um, Here's a few of them. I answered a lot of them, but I'm going to answer them, I think, in more detail on this episode. I love sprinkling in a Q&A podcast episode just because on Instagram, it's hard to answer questions as thoroughly as I would like to. And I always find that I like am spamming my Instagram stories on Monday, which is not a bad thing. Um, But I think doing these Q&A podcast episodes is really helpful and allows me to sort of elaborate on a lot of the questions that I either can't answer or can't answer in as much detail. So if you don't follow me on Instagram, you should because I do a Q&A every Monday. So I get a lot of DMs and I can't answer all of my DMs. Um, I honestly have kind of gotten to a point where I'm not really looking at them. So I wouldn't necessarily say DM me. But if you have specific questions, make sure you're following me on Instagram and submit them on these question boxes because even if I don't answer your question directly on like a Monday Q&A session, I save the questions for these podcast episodes and then I also use them to help direct and like guide content that I put out. So like if I see I'm getting the same kinds of questions over and over again, I'll make sure that I'm putting out content that answers that question. So if you don't ask your question, I can't help you. So ask the question, even if I don't answer it um, directly, I will some way or another answer it through a different platform or a different medium like the podcast. So without further ado, I'm literally going to go through these one by one. Um, No rhyme or reason to what they are. A lot of the questions this week had to do with the personal finance dashboard. So I'll try not to like repeat a lot of those questions. I think a lot of them I've answered in the past. So yeah. Reminder, if you listen to the podcast, you can use the code PODCAST1 for $10 off the personal finance dashboard. I don't advertise that anywhere else except for the podcast. I see you guys using it. So I want you guys to use it. I want more people to use that code and listen to the podcast. So yeah, use it if you haven't yet. All right, getting into the Q&A. So first, how do you track a return in the personal finance dashboard? I get this question all the time and I feel like it is also answered in the like setup video. I'm actually in the process. I haven't started, but I've been keeping track of the questions that I get often. I'm going to film like screen recordings of my most frequently asked questions like how to do this, how to track debt, all of those things in the PFD and load them into Teachable so you have like a resource for that. It's coming Um, it'll probably be more of like a September project for me more than an August project just because I'm gone for half of August, but that's coming. So if you haven't gotten the PFD yet and you're curious or you are looking for more resources, those are all going to be there. But anyways, getting back to the question, how do you track a return in the personal finance dashboard? Literally what I do is when I buy something, so I'll use a real life example. I recently bought a bunch of bathing suits off of this website called RL. I think I spent like $130 or something on four bathing suits. They were doing a sale. And I tracked that as like when I bought them, the category they go in and my dashboard that I've set up is shopping. And then I tracked the $130 and I put a note in that said bathing suits, potential return. So if I'm ordering something online and I know that I might return it, I'll label it as potential return just so that when I'm doing like my reflection and stuff, I won't necessarily count it until I know for sure that I'm not returning it. 
Um, in this case, I didn't like any of the bathing suits. Unrelated, but like, why are bathing suits so small now? Like, I ordered all of these bathing suits, and they're all, like, none of them fit me. They were all so teeny. Like, can we get back to a society where we make bathing suits that fit normal-sized people? Because, like, I'm not even, like, a big person. And I sized up, and none of these bathing suits fit me properly. And it's like, who are these made for? Like, mini people? I don't understand. Who do they fit? That's what I want to know. Like... Literally, it doesn't make any sense to me, but that's besides the point. Basically, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to delete that line because I'm going to return them. So like it's not income because it's not money that I'm earning. It's just money that I spent and now I'm receiving back. So like there's no need necessarily to track like a return. There's a few ways to do this though. So what I do is I just delete the line because I'm returning all of it. If I was only going to return like let's say 50% of it, I would just adjust that $130 to like $65, whatever I actually ended up spending, factoring in the return amount. So if I returned $65 worth, that means that I actually only spent the $65 that is half of that. You know, do the math in your brain. Um, Another way you could do it is you could just enter in another line and also label it shopping and then enter in the amount that you got for the return as a negative number and they'll basically negate each other and net out to what you actually spent so it depends it's up to you but those are a few ways that you can do that another question i got is if i'm going on vacation how do i classify and categorize eating out do i would i call it travel or would i call it restaurant this is up to you But I personally would call it travel. Like if I'm traveling, any expense that I spend traveling is a travel expense. It's not, unless it's shopping, then I'll call it shopping. But like if I'm spending money on anything traveling, it's just travel. Because I, when I do that, it makes it easier for me to like go back and look at A, how much money I spent on travel during the year and traveling. But B, when I'm thinking about planning like weekends away and stuff, it gives me a better estimate of what to plan for because I know specifically what I spent on the prior trip that I went on. How do you save and invest for a big purchase like a wedding? I do have an entire episode about weddings, so I would recommend you check that out. It was with my sister who's currently planning a wedding. But basically for this, I would use a sinking fund. And a sinking fund is basically like, a short-term saving strategy. It's just a fancy way to say like a separate savings account. But basically, a sinking fund, with a sinking fund, you can choose what your savings goal is. So in this case, let's say your savings goal is to save up for a wedding. And basically, you would set up an account, a high-yield savings account. You would call it wedding. And on a consistent cadence, you would be putting money into that account specifically for wedding-related expenses. And then when you have to pay for things, you withdraw the money from that account and use it to pay for stuff. That's what I would do. I would not invest any money for a wedding if you're planning to get married soon. A lot of times I get asked like, should I invest money to buy a house? Should I invest money for my wedding if it's in a couple of years? Personally, I this is not investment advice. Do whatever you want. But personally, I would never do that because you could be forced to sell at a loss. And when you invest over the course of two or three years, like that's a short term, that's short term investing, which I do not condone. I don't do that. If I'm investing my money in the stock market, it's money I don't plan to touch for 10 plus years. It's long term money for a later stage in my life that gives it proper time to grow through market fluctuations, which will happen 
So I think that's important to keep in mind. Another question related to this is what's um, the difference between a, let me find the actual question because this was related. Oh, here it is. What is the difference between a CD and a high yield savings account? So if you, let's say that your wedding is in two years and you know for an absolute fact that you are not going to need to use any of the money you saved for your wedding for at least a year. Like none of your bills are due, none of your expenses are due. A potential option to explore would be a CD, which is a certificate of deposit. And basically it's a savings account sort of, but it's it's a way that you can save your money. You basically lock your money up for a year for a guaranteed interest rate. So you can buy a CD that's like guaranteed 4%. But basically, you cannot touch or withdraw that money for a full year, but you're guaranteed the 4% back. So it's just a different way to earn a guaranteed interest, but it obviously comes with parameters like that money has to be locked up. Whereas a high yield savings account is just a, it's just a savings account. So like you can withdraw that money when you need to, but usually the interest rates are lower. They have been going up recently. I think now most high yield savings accounts, the interest rates are like over 1%. But it's different. A CD interest rate is going to be much higher than that. Um, so that's another option to explore if you have short-term savings that you know you're not going to need to touch. I personally don't have any CDs just because all of my sinking funds, I have four or three. I have one for my emergency fund, which I would never lock that money up because who knows when I'm going to need it. I have one for my car, same thing like if I have a car issue, I need to get my car serviced, I need to do my registration, I get in an accident, God forbid, like I have money set aside to help cover those expenses so that it doesn't impact my current financial plan um, in a sinking fund. And then I have one for weddings for this year and traveling to weddings because I have two weddings that I'm going to where I have to buy dresses, I have to travel, I have to go to a hotel, etc. So that is for that. I'm opening or creating another sinking fund for travel for the next couple of years that I'm starting to save for during August. So yeah, that's that. Um, you can open up different high yield savings accounts. I currently use Capital One. I'm actually moving all of my money into Ally because with Ally, you can have one high yield savings account and then separate them out into different buckets which are different savings goals. So it just depends. Those are two great options. I have a free high yield savings account guide linked in my linked in the show notes. So just go to my links page and you'll see it on there. Um, the next question, where do you host your podcast? I use Anchor to host my podcast. Anchor is a really great resource just because it's so easy. It's free. It distributes your podcast on all of the, di the different platforms. You can listen to a podcast and it's really easy to use. So I love Anchor. Um, if you're looking to start a podcast, check Anchor out. Uh, this isn't an ad. I think they do ads. Like you can do ads on your podcast using Anchor. I don't run any ads on my podcast. It's ad-free currently. So um, yeah, but definitely check out Anchor. Um, okay, one of the questions here was tips for feeling stuck or paralyzed when setting up the personal finance dashboard. How do I not give up? So I think this is less related to the PFD and more related to like feeling paralyzed when you've made the decision to like overhaul your finances or get started on your financial journey. I think it's really challenging to take that first step in any area of your life, but specifically with your finances, it can be 
very overwhelming and very scary to actually face the truth of your financial situation, especially if you know you're not going to be super happy with it. It's easier to ignore it than it is to just deal with it. I go through phases like this where like if I know I've spent a lot of money or I know my credit card bill's high, I'm way more likely to skip like my weekly money review just because I don't want to deal with it and that's not healthy. So I think if you're someone who maybe you just got the personal finance dashboard or you just got a tool to start tracking and managing your finances, whether it's an app or a different template or whatever, how do you not feel paralyzed when you're getting to set when you're starting to set it up? I think A, what you can do is do it over a period of time. So maybe you choose a week where every day after work you're going to spend 10 minutes doing one thing that's going to help you set it up. So that could be on Monday, you choose your categories. On Tuesday, you create your baseline budget. On Wednesday, you start tracking your expenses. Like what's it going to take to like spend a couple minutes a day to get it all done over a period of time where it's less scary, less intimidating, less overwhelming? My other tip here would be to just rip the Band-Aid off and lean into the discomfort because it you're going to feel so much better once you do it. It's just the act of doing it and sitting down and doing it. I always post on like Sundays, Mondays. I will usually always share like myself going through my uh, weekly money routine. So I think that would be a really great opportunity to do it is like to follow along with me. I also may create content. I'm actually going to pull up my iPad and write this down um, around this question because I really think that starting your financial journey is a very intimidating thing and being able to like follow along with someone or have tips on how to set it up is a very powerful thing. So I'm going to write this down. Um, I do use a content planner. So this is not a question I received, but it is a question I get often um, for planning out all of my content. I use Flourish Planner's content planner. I have a whole bunch of videos about it on YouTube. So I definitely would check that out. If you are somebody who has a business or you create content and you need a way to plan everything out, her planner is great just because it gives you like a full calendar view. And then I use my iPad, which is so easy for highlighting and color coding and stuff. So I'm writing this down, how to not feel paralyzed when starting um, your financial journey. Okay, moving into the next question here. Sorry for that little pause, but sometimes these ideas just come to you. Um, okay, Do does the Own Your Career template have a student discount code? No. The Own Your Career template's $20. I think it's priced low enough where it doesn't need a discount code. Um, I do have a student discount code. I'm not going to say what it is here, but if you are somebody who is a student, you can email me, Michaela at breakyourbudget.com, make the subject line like student discount, a picture of your schedule, a picture of your ID, whatever, just prove to me that you're a student or a teacher. This applies to teachers too. I'll give you the code to get some money off um, the PFD. It's $20 off if you're a student because I know that being a student is hard and making money as a student is hard. And when you're in college and stuff, you don't have discretionary income. I understand that. So um, if you are a student, you can email me that. Um, I'm losing my train of thought. I apologize. But if you are somebody who is buying the PFD, you will have the option at checkout to upsell 
um, or yeah, to actually buy the own your career template for 50% off. So if you use the podcast code and then you also buy the own your career template for 50% off at the time of purchase, you can get both of them for $60 instead of, um, paying for them separately. So, you know, it's good to know. Moving on. When purchasing the personal finance dashboard, is it just a one-time expense? Yes, it is a one-time expense and you will have access to the template forever because it's Google Sheets. So you can just make a copy year over year, change out the year, it'll work forever. Um, you get access to all of the upgrades. So like if I make changes to the personal finance dashboard or enhancements, usually I do them once a year. If I'm getting a lot of questions about the same thing, I'll try to make that change in the actual template and then I'll release it at the end of the year so you can start the new year with a fresh template. You get that for free when you buy it. I don't make you rebuy a new version of it. So um, that's that. It's a one-time expense. I don't say you get lifetime access because if uh, break your budget ends, it, you may lose access to Teachable. I don't know what that will look like in the future, so I don't want to promise it. But if you buy the template, you have it forever. So that's that. Um, let me see the next question. So many of these questions were like coupons on the PFD. I don't want to keep answering that. Oh, this is a good question. Should I move out of my parents' house and pay rent? for independence or should I stay in a tax student debt for money but giving like giving up my independence because I'm living at home this is a hard question because it's so situation dependent but basically I look at this and I'll share my experience but my like big regret is moving out of my parents house too soon because I think that when you're fresh out of college it's really hard when you go from being independent in college to moving back home and losing that independence. But at the same time, like you have your whole life to live independently. And once you start paying bills and you move out, those bills literally never stop. So if you have a situation where you're living at home and your situation is comfortable and you have a good relationship with your parents and it's a safe environment, whatever, and it's you know, near where you work or it makes sense given whatever your work situation is, I don't think there's any issue with living at home. I think there's a lot of benefit to living at home and getting ahead financially if you're able to. So in this instance, like if you are not in a bad situation and you're currently living at home and you're debating if you should move out or not, or if you should put all of this money, like this question said, towards debt, I would say stay home. Stay home, figure out your debt situation, get a good grip on it, And then when you feel financially comfortable, when you have an emergency fund, move out. But living at home gives you the opportunity to basically live rent-free, expense-free, or with way less expenses if you're contributing to like your household expenses for your parents. It gives you the opportunity to redirect the majority of your money towards savings for a defined period of time. I mean, eventually, yes, you do need to move out. But in the period where I lived at home, I was able to save so much more money just because I didn't have to pay a thousand plus dollars a month for rent. Like that a thousand dollars went directly into my savings. So I would take advantage of that if you're able to. I don't think there's any shame in living at home. I think culturally we should definitely move towards accepting living at home. And I think Gen Z has actually normalized this a little bit, but I do think it's challenging when you see online, like especially TikTok, people's apartments and like their whole lives living in the city it makes you feel like you're missing out you're not take it from me now being 
a little bit older later on in my 20s, I still feel so young. Like your 20s are so long, it's 10 years. You have so much time. And I know it probably doesn't feel like it, but you do have a lot of time to live your 20s in a city later on, like two years at home, one year at home. It's not that big of a deal. So in this instance, I would definitely say it probably would make more sense to stay home if it's a good situation for you. Okay, the next question here is, can you have a 401k if your employer doesn't offer one? And the answer to that question is no, you can't because a 401k is an employer-sponsored retirement plan. So you cannot have a 401k if your employer doesn't offer one. That being said, there are other options for saving for retirement. You can open up an IRA, which is a really great option um, if you don't have the option to have a 401k. Either way, you get a tax benefit when you're saving for retirement if you use a tax-advantaged account, a 401k, or an IRA. So that is the answer to that question. What was your job previously? Um, my job previously was working in FPNA, which stands for Financial Planning and Analysis. Um, basically, what I did was I worked at a CPG company, which is a consumer product goods company, and I managed all of our like brand and marketing budget. So I was like the point of contact for basically, I want to say like, million. Isn't that so crazy? When you think about like corporate America, they task such young people with so much financial responsibility. Even like if you're, if you work in marketing or whatever, I see this often, like young people who are in charge of such a huge portion of a company's budget or strategy or direction. It's fascinating to me. But anyways, My role working at that company was managing all of our brand budget. So that included forecasting, planning, all of the financials for these specific brands, um, and then also managing those budgets, dealing with people. So like understanding ROI on how people were spending their money, making sure that what we were using the money on made sense, any issues that came up with how the money was being spent, how to reallocate funds between brands, between projects based on company priorities, it was a lot. Honestly, I did really enjoy it, but it got to a point where it the personalities that I was working with was really difficult. There was a lot of blame. The environment was like a little bit toxic, and I really didn't enjoy that part of it, but I think that's just corporate America. But anyways, I did that for 2 years and then the 3 or 2 and a half to 3 years prior to that, I worked in investment research and investment consulting. I have a whole podcast episode on this so you can listen to that to learn more about my career journey. This next question here is, can I use a new job offer as a way to ask for more money in my current role? You can, but I think this is a little bit risky. It requires like following a very specific cadence or like having a good relationship with your manager. I'm trying to think of the best way to answer this. Um, But I do know people who have basically gotten a job offer and then gone to their manager and said, I like, in essence, hey, I got this job offer. I really don't want to leave. Um, But they offered me, you know, X amount of money and is there anything you can do? 
So I think that's kind of the approach that you need to take is you need to A, have a good relationship with your manager because if you go to your manager and you don't have a good relationship with them and you say, I got a job offer, like, can you give me more money or I'm going to leave? It's not going to end well. Like, I think that's probably not the best way to approach it. But I think if you have a good relationship with your manager and you express to them that you're really happy in your role and you want to stay, but from a financial standpoint, you know, you have this offer on the table that they offered you a lot of money. It's hard to turn down. Like, is there any way we can either match it or come or I could get a raise or something? That's probably the way that I would approach it. My sister's fiance did this. Um, It didn't end up panning in his favor. So he did end up leaving and pursuing a different opportunity because the company he was currently at just couldn't match the other offer. And then I also have a friend who did this where she loved her job so much and she really didn't want to leave, but she did get a job offer elsewhere that was significantly more money. And she tried to work with her manager, who she had a good relationship with. She tried to work with her manager. They tried to find the budget. They tried to create a role for her, and it just didn't pan. So I think it's very, it just very much so depends on the situation. I think to answer the question succinctly, yes, you can use a new job offer as a way to leverage more money in your current role, but I do think you need to evaluate the situation and make sure that you're comfortable having the conversation with your manager, you have a good relationship with them, and you're okay with it going south because it could. Um, But it's all about how you approach it. Like you can't just be like, hey, I got this job offer and I'm quitting unless you give me more money. It needs to be more of like, I really enjoy working here. I really don't want to leave, but I have an offer that's hard for me to turn down. Is there anything we can do so that I can stay here? Um, and see where it goes, knowing you could get what you want, but the likelihood that you don't is just as high. So yeah, that's my answer to that question. Let me see. How do you deal with a condescending manager? Do you have any advice? This is really hard because having a condescending manager is a nightmare. And I've had bad managers in the past. I've had micromanagers. I've had managers that are like totally not around at all, don't care, no guidance. And I've had people that I've worked with that are condescending and rude and mean. And I just think ultimately the best way in all situations in corporate America and in general in life to deal with people who are condescending or rude is to not respond and to learn how to stay calm because oftentimes people who are condescending or who say things intentionally to hurt your feelings or insult you, they're looking for a reaction, like they're looking for an argument. And the best way to like make them feel stupid is to just not respond or to respond plainly as if they weren't condescending to you because it basically flips the script on them and then it's like if they're a normal person then likely they'll feel self-conscious about it and that's the goal is to sort of be like hey what is wrong with you for acting this way i think ultimately too like we're adults So if somebody is treating you with disrespect in the workplace, you have a couple of options. You can either raise it to their manager, you can raise it to HR, or you can leave. I think the most powerful thing you can do is leave. Um, What I've done in the past is I've let people be rude to me, even though it's that is like the hardest thing for me because I am a very confrontational person. I am not afraid of confrontation. I'm not afraid to call people out. I'm not afraid to like not yell at someone, but basically be like, your behavior is inappropriate and you will not disrespect me. Like I don't 
that's not a fear that I have. I know a lot of people do have that fear. And so usually if you are afraid of confrontation, you just take the heat, which I don't think is um, healthy. But in a corporate setting, sometimes you do just have to take it and then you have to use that and act on it in a different way. Like, for example, finding a new job and leaving. What I've done is I've allowed people to like be rude to me um, and I kind of just sit there and let them do it. It's happened. It happened to me a few times in my prior job. I'd be on meetings with a lot of people and there were a few people I worked with who like felt it was appropriate to, you know, either yell at me or call me out on something that we could have had a private conversation on or something in front of a broader group. And instead of getting defensive or instead of saying like, no, you're wrong, I would just let them do it and embarrass themselves because everybody, again, in that meeting is an adult and can see what's going on. And then after the fact, you know, you either raise it to your to your manager's manager or your manager if it's somebody who's not maybe your directly manager who's causing these problems. And then again, you use that information and make further decisions. So like my decision was to leave because I didn't like that environment. And then in your exit interview, you tell HR and you let them know Um, and you leave quietly, which is what I did and it worked. So that is my best advice. It sucks. It's an awful situation and there aren't really that many great ways to handle it, which sucks. But yeah, that's kind of really all you can do. What do you wish you did earlier for break your budget? Honestly, I wouldn't change anything. I think for me, if I had to change anything, I would have gotten on TikTok sooner. But I was so nervous about TikTok because like video wasn't what it is now at the time that I started TikTok. And TikTok felt like just a different kind of app than it is now. Like less people were on it. I was nervous about people finding me. Now I don't care. Um, And the other thing is YouTube. I didn't start YouTube for so long, again, because I was nervous about what other people would think. And I've gotten to a place where I don't care. Like if somebody thinks what I do is stupid or if somebody thinks that um, what I do is dumb or whatever, like I don't care because I make more money than them. And I know for sure. So that's that. Like I think um, for me, what I wish I could change about Break Your Budget is just caring less about what other people think and doing what I wanted to do sooner. All that being said at this point is I think everything sort of played out how it needed to. I started things when it made sense for me and you know, looking back, even though theoretically I wish I had started YouTube five years ago, I can't change that. And I wouldn't have been able to do YouTube in a full-time job anyways, because YouTube is a lot of work, so. It is what it is. I don't think I'd change anything, honestly. Um, And I'm really happy with where Break Your Budget is now. I'm really happy with where I am. I'm happy with the direction I'm moving in and the projects I have going and all of the content and everything I put out on all of these different platforms. I'm happy with my social media growth. I'm happy with my audience. So I think everything kind of worked out how it needed to. Do I have any travel plans outside of weddings? This year, I do not. Next year, I really want to travel more. Um, this year, my travel plans for the rest of the year is I'm going home. By the time you're listening this, I listening to this, I will already be home. I'm doing two weeks on Cape Cod and then I'm coming back. And then in September, I'm going back to Cape Cod for 10 days because I'm doing, I'm going to my sister's bridal shower, which is on the Cape. 
Um, and then the weekend after, we are doing her bachelorette party, which will be in Newport, Rhode Island. And then in September, or in November, I'm going to Charleston for a week for a wedding. So I'm spending a couple days there with my mom, actually. And then the wedding is the weekend. And then in December, I'm going home again for probably two or three weeks for the holidays. Also, my sister's wedding, which is in Vermont. Um, so yeah, I don't really have any other travel plans for Labor Day weekend. I'm going to Lake Arrowhead, but that's like a road trip. It's not far from where I live. I think it's like two hours. I'd love to do maybe one or two other like California weekend trips, but we'll see what's in the cards next year though. Like I said, I want to travel. I want to go to Hawaii next year. I don't have any weddings next year. Um, thank God. So all of the travel that I do will be travel that I want to do for myself, which I'm excited about. That's not to say I'm not excited about the wedding travel I'm doing this year. I've never been to Charleston. I'm very excited to go. And I'm excited, obviously, for my sister's wedding. I'm really happy for her. So that's that. But yeah, next year I want to go to Hawaii. And I want to do a lot more California trips. Like I really want to do like a PCH California road trip and go all the way up to Napa. Um, and then all the way down to San Francisco. So we'll see, or not San Francisco, San Diego. So we'll see if I'm able to figure something like that out. Um, what should I invest in in my Roth IRA? I can't answer this question for you. I get questions like this all the time and I know they come from a good place, but like I am not allowed to give you investment advice. I'm not licensed and I don't know your situation. I personally, in my IRA, all my retirement accounts are in target date funds, So I would recommend checking those out and seeing if they're the right fit for you. Otherwise, I would learn about investments. um, And I do talk about them on my page sometimes, but I hesitate often because when I do talk about investments in too much detail, I get these specific kinds of questions that I can't answer. I have so many resources on like how to start investing, but when it comes to choosing specific investments, you need to make decisions based off of your own situation. So I learned a lot about investing through college and then also through just my career. But there are so many resources that teach you like asset allocation and how to build a portfolio. I will teach you to be rich is a good one, but also like Google. Google is your friend. So I would definitely use it. Do I have any real estate investments? I do not own any property. No. Um, but I do invest in private real estate using Fundrise. I have a whole highlight on my Instagram. If you're interested in learning about Fundrise, check it out. It's a great way to invest in real estate without buying real estate. Um, and I find that, well, I mean, this is kind of just a proven point, but real estate and the stock market tend to be uncorrelated, meaning that when the stock market is down, real estate tends to perform better. It's a great way to basically hedge your portfolio. And so... That's what I've been doing, and I have found that over the course of this year, my fundrise investments have gone up, even though the stock market is going down. So it's just a great way to kind of balance out your portfolio, in my personal opinion. But that is not investment advice. I want to make sure that's very clear. Um, let me see. No question, just purchased the PFD, and wow, it's a game changer. I'm obsessed. I'm glad. I'm so, I love getting messages from you guys saying that you love the personal finance dashboard. It literally, Like it means the world to me to know that there are so many people out there using a tool that I designed to actually change their finances and to um, improve your financial future and change your life. Really, it 
literally warms my heart and I'm a cold person. So I'm glad that so many of you guys really like it. Um, let me see. I'm going to answer a few from the top here that I didn't get to on my stories. Um, is it possible to contribute to a 401k after you've received your paycheck? I don't think it is. I think your 401k contributions have to come directly off your paycheck. If you want to contribute more, I'd recommend maybe setting aside additional money in your checking account and then upping your contribution. So like your paycheck amounts will be less, but your contribution to your 401k will be more. But since you've moved additional money into your checking account, maybe from savings or something, you have the money to like pay your bills and stuff. That's what I did last year at the end of the year. I had enough money in my checking account to like pay my bills for a couple of months. And so I contributed 100% of my paycheck to my 401k to get as much money in there as I could by the end of the year. Because yeah, I'm like 99.9% positive you can't retroactively contribute money to a 401k. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. Um, should you ask for a raise based on inflation? I think I'm going to do a whole episode and some specific content around negotiation and asking for raises and stuff, but I don't think that asking for a raise based on inflation is a good strategy just because it's basically saying like, I need more money to pay for stuff that I want. Like, I just don't think that's the right way to frame it up. And I also think that when it comes to raises, especially in a corporate setting, there are parameters and they're all company specific, but like companies have structure and pay scales in place for a reason. And they're not most likely going to adjust those on a case-by-case basis just because of inflation. And do I agree with that strategy? No, but I think that's the reality. I think you're way more likely to see success in asking for a raise if it's based off of merit than just saying like inflation's really high, I deserve more money. Um, I just don't think, like when you think about getting a raise, often it has to do with the fact that you're adding more value to the company and they're getting an ROI on the additional money that they're paying you. Because when you think about, um, and I talked about this in a prior podcast episode, but like when you think about a company's financials, if inflation is happening, like they're paying for inflation in just the costs to operate in general. And then on top of that, there's an expectation from employees that they're also going to get paid more and something's got to give. So like, if everybody at a company got an inflation raise, for example, you know, they'd probably also have to lay people off. Like they have earnings and uh, profit targets that they have to reach. And the money, if they're spending more money, let's say, let me just uh, rewind. I'm going to give you guys a cliff notes here. Basically, a company has profitability targets that they need to reach. And in order to reach those, all of the different levers within their P&L, which is their profit and loss statement, have to sort of even out appropriately. So let's say that a company is, you know, reaching their revenue plan. So like they're selling as much as they thought they were going to sell. But inflation has made the cost of doing business, so cost of goods sold, much higher than what they anticipated. That means that their gross income is going to be lower than they thought, even though their sales targets are where they're going to be because sales minus cost of goods sold is gross income. If your cost of goods sold is higher than what you anticipated, but your sales are the same, you're, you're still, your 
you're making less money theoretically, or you're keeping less money. Beyond gross income, you then have your operating costs, so the costs to do business, so to keep the lights on. So that's people costs, that's marketing costs, that's G&A costs, so like rent, etc. If those are also going up due to inflation, so you're already operating at a lower gross income than you had anticipated, then your variable operating costs are also higher. Your profitability at the end of the year is going to be way less. So if it's le- if your profitability is less than what you targeted, there are implications to that. So in order to reach those profitability targets, knowing that the cost to produce whatever you're selling is higher, you have to adjust those variable costs. So if inflation is really high, the cost to do business is higher, and then you're also raising salaries and wages for your headcount and employees, that it just... It doesn't always work that way. And I think that understanding how a PL works is so valuable in having these conversations. Sometimes there just isn't budget to adjust people's salaries. And I don't agree with it and it sucks, but that's the reality. That's why we're starting to see layoffs and stuff. So I don't think that approaching a raise conversation or a salary conversation with inflation being your main point of argument or like your main reason for asking for a raise is the right strategy i think you should frame it up differently like i bring xyz skills to the table and i think i'm worth more money but that's just my opinion um let me see what advice would you give to someone starting a new job who just moved to a new city i would say be a sponge at work like For the first few years, or like at least the first year out of college, I think prioritizing your career and prioritizing your job can pay dividends long term. So meaning like go into the office if you're able to. Focus on building relationships with your coworkers and your colleagues. Focus on learning as much as you can, developing as many skills as you can, taking as many classes or as many courses or as many trainings as you can that your work offers to you, I think is really valuable. I look back on my first year at work, like my first year working out of college, and the friends that I made in my first job are still my friends today. Like I think there's something so special about your coworkers that you make in your first job. And I think if you've just moved to a new city, like you can make so many friends at work, you can build a social life at work. And then when you find a new job eventually, which you will, you can still maintain those friendships and you've learned so much and then you can apply that to like your future. So that's the advice I would give. It's like really take your job seriously, prioritize your relationships, prioritize learning and becoming a sponge and then carry that with you through your future jobs because when you move to a new city and you don't have a lot of people in your circle um, because you're in a new place and maybe you don't have friends from college or you know people you know that live in that city and you're spending a lot of time at work, like that's really where you're going to make a lot of friends and then you can make friends through those friends and it just opens up so many new people into your life. I think a lot of people... Um, don't always prioritize making friends at work because they look at work as like, these are my coworkers. Why would I want to be friends with them? But there's a lot of value in uh, building relationships and becoming friends with the people you work with. You spend so much time with them, like you might as well get along. So that's my advice there. I think I'm going to answer one more question. How do you stop yourself from overspending or temptations to buy things? 
a few things actually. So first is I have a financial plan in place and I have a budget where I allocate money for certain things that are aligned with my values. And basically if some purchase is not aligned with my priorities or it doesn't fit into my broader financial plan or the goals that I've set out to achieve, I'm not going to buy it. And I'm not tempted to buy it because it's not adding any value to my life. So I think the best way to avoid temptation is to really think about like what are the things in your life that bring you joy? What are the things that add value to your life? And focus your spending on those things. Because if you're using your money in a way where you're spending your money on stuff that gives you like short-term happiness, but it's not actually adding anything to your life or it's not making you feel good, you're wasting your money. Like you might as well flush it down the toilet because it's not doing anything for you. So I think getting really clear on your values and priorities is the best route to take when it comes to avoiding overspending or avoiding temptation because there comes a point where like you don't want to spend money on stuff that isn't adding value to your life because there's no reason to. Another tip here would be to set financial goals, like clear specific financial goals because you can use those as guidance around how you actually want to use your money. And it also provides some motivation for not overspending or not giving into that temptation because your money could be put towards those goals. So thinking about what kinds of financial goals you want to reach, what you want to do with your life in the future, what that looks like for you is a really great way to get clear on how you want to approach your finances and how you want to use your money to live the life ultimately that you choose to live long term. Um, It's an ongoing process though. I think it takes trial and error and sometimes overspending is how you learn. Um, You learn how you feel when you spend money on things you don't like and you learn how to change your behavior to avoid feeling that way later. I also think going through like regular money reviews, I talk about this often, like a weekly money review and a monthly money review is a really powerful way to get close to how you use your money. And that's why the personal finance dashboard is a manual tool because it forces you to like actually physically acknowledge every expense that you incur. And that is how you change your behavior long term. Like if you spend money on something and then you're forced to accept it and acknowledge it and look at it and write it down and feel the feelings that come along with, I spent $100 on something that I don't give a shit about, you are way more likely to change your behavior in the future as opposed to like if you are a consistent overspender and you never take the time to like reflect on it or acknowledge that spending. So those are my tips for that. With that, I'm going to wrap up this podcast episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Remember, go leave me a review if you like it. You can get $10 off the PFD using the code podcast1, and I will catch you guys in the next episode.